This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who are incarcerated here. My name's Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky. Hi, everyone. Hey, Sky. How's Texas? It is uh, pretty close to a full lockdown. Uh, restaurants are closed. Uh, my spring break is almost over, so we are going to start online classes for at least two weeks, though rumors are that we will go online for the rest of the semester, and I don't know how my motivation will handle it. And it's also starting to get hot and humid, and so things could be better. <laughs> but yeah. things could be better yeah, across just the so whole our... world. <laughs> It's March 20th, and so in Idaho here, we're just, our restaurants just shut down, Mm -hmm. and, you know, things are looking a little bit dicey. We just shut down today, March 20th, 2020, at the Old Pen from visitors, so we're still reporting into work, and and we're doing a lot of spring cleaning here at the prison, cleaning out cells and uh, working on exhibits and other items, just so that when we do open up, people are going to walk in and see you know, a sparkling brand new old prison. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, sounds So hopefully great. that's soon. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad we get to do this because this yes. is such a good respite from like news. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. We, we definitely timed our, our release almost perfectly. Anyway, <laughs> let's get to some stories. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> Let's go back 100 years. Uh, Who are you talking about today, Skye? So um, we are actually going to go back over 100 years um, because (gasps) I'm looking at one of our first women, number 636, Fedora Crawford. Um, I'm really excited about this story. I did not think that we were going to be able to find anything on her, but I was able to, and her story is so fascinating. Like I said, she doesn't have a lot written on her, so a lot of our episode is going to be, not a lot, but probably half of my part of the episode is going to be, like, history about sort of where she was from. We just have one article in, uh, it's from the Library of Congress, and then we have one document in her file. So, we only know so much. So, as we get started, um, sources, the one document in her inmate file, that article from Chronicling America is from the Silver Messenger. I did use a little bit of Ancestry.com. I scoured it for any files that potentially might have been her. I'll get into that a little bit later. There are some Idaho Daily Statesman articles, again, actually not about her. I'll get into all of that. I used LemhiCountyIdaho.org, Wikipedia, and also GhostTowns.com. So... 
As I said, this is going to be a pretty short episode, but I wanted to do her because the crime that got her into the pen is fascinating. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, even though there is just one document and only one newspaper article, I still think her story deserves to be told. Can I just say, we didn't know what her crime was. And when you found it, like the glee on your face and uh, in your voice as you were telling us, I found Fedora Crawford's crime. I finally found it. It was, man. Yeah, it's. I'm so excited for you to tell this story because uh, that feeling of like finally figuring out one of these things, so good. And yeah. everybody, seriously, if you want, while you're in quarantine, you know, go do some research. Research your family. Go to Library of Congress and search something and yeah. have fun. Yeah. Yeah, I had that feeling with two inmates. It was her, and then it was uh, Ernestine Paul, who we profiled last season. Just yeah, it's just a an immense amount of satisfaction of just like I found them, like we can account for them. There's, I mean, their stories are going to be told now. So I am very excited to tell you about Fedora. So Fedora was born around 1870 in France. She was one of six of our female inmates who was born outside of the country but she was she i think was the only female inmate born in france so that's kind of neat we don't know her real name according to the singular document in her inmate file she goes by the alias mary dupony crawford is not her real last name and i'll get into why we know that and fedora is not exactly a popular french name so i don't really know uh dupony might be perhaps her paternal uh, last name, but uh, Mary is actually the name of a a relative. And again, I'll get into that. And so this is why I don't think this is her real name either. So we just don't, we just don't really know much about her. According to this intake paper, her father died when she was two years old and then her mother died when she was nine. So at just nine years old, she was an orphan. And so according to this intake paper at the age of nine, she left her parents home she likely headed to live with some kin some family and i would guess that she goes to live with an aunt named mary dupony so that's probably where she got that name that alias is from that aunt so she says that she attended common school for nine years i don't know if this means that she attended until she was nine years old which would make sense when you are taken out of your home environment, it's hard to sort of stay in. That would have been about fourth or fifth grade that she would have dropped out. It is possible that she attended until her early teens, so literally for nine years. Uh, we just we just don't know. At some point in the late 1880s, maybe early 1890s, she likely came over to the U.S., and at some point, she ended up in the middle of Idaho in Limhi County, and I believe she was at Gibbonsville, which is near Salmon, Idaho. So let me give you a little bit of background about Lemhi County. I didn't know anything about this county, so this is all kind of new information and very interesting. Mm-hmm. So uh, Lemhi County is in eastern central Idaho, kind of right along the border of Idaho and Montana. It's only about 150 miles from Butte, Montana. The Lemhi Band of the Shoshone natives occupied the area for most of modern human history. There is human activity noted along the Salmon River as early as 14,000 years ago, wow. which is very similar to the, the same amount of activity you had sort of in Twin Falls. So I, I think what that teaches us is that, you know, it's so crazy to think about 
humans living like 14,000 years ago. But there is, I mean, people were there and people were living on this land, which is so cool. But as I said, the, the Lemhi Band in modern human history were the, the main occupiers, the only, well, I mean, I wouldn't say the only because obviously there were other Native American tribes, but they were the main band sort of in that area. And in 1875, yeah. they were forced onto a reservation, but the tribe actually failed to ratify that reservation. They said, we don't, we don't want to be put on this reservation, but they were kept there until 1907 when that reservation was disbanded and then the tribes were forced onto the Fort Hall Reservation, which is, as we know, down near Blackfoot. Basically, uh, the Lemhi Band lost their native home, which is, is really disappointing not only for them, but I think also to know that sort of my ancestors did this to to a, a group of people, uh, you know, took them from their ancestral lands. It, that's pretty lame. So the Lewis and Clark expedition entered Lemhi County, uh, or what is now Lemhi County, at Lemhi Pass in August 1805. And Sacagawea was born in Lemhi Valley. She was actually the sister of a Lemhi band chief. So she was quite up there in terms of sort of the uh, Limhi hierarchy, I guess. And then, you know, we sort of know the story of her then leading, going with uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition. Then in 1822, a member of the Hudson Bay Company, his name was Michael Bourdon, established Limhi Valley as the base of trading operations. And there were major fur trade operations in the area for 20 years a full exploration of the Salmon River from its source at the Snake River didn't happen until about 1832. So it would take another 10 years after Bourdon came in for people to actually kind of hike down the Salmon River and find that its source is at the Snake River. Wow. Then in 1855, some Mormon settlers established Fort Lemhi, which is what the area is named for. Three years after they first established the fort. The natives attacked the settlement at Fort Lemhi, and the settlers, understandably quite frightened, withdrew. But the name stuck, and that is what, well, actually, I shouldn't, it is It is named for Fort Lemhi, but I think it was named Fort Lemhi because the Native Americans who resided there. Mm-hmm. So then, in 1862, the first gold miners venture into the area, but major veins of gold are not struck until four years later in 1866. And then so many people flooded into the area that a stagecoach route was established from Montana to current day Salmon City in 1867. And Salmon City is now just known as Salmon, Mm -hmm. but I'll call it Salmon City just until uh, sort of that name gets changed. And after people start uh, flooding into the area and there's a stagecoach route, there are some famous adventurers like Jedediah Smith and Jim Bridger who all spend time in the Lemhi County area, which is really neat. Lemhi County was founded in 1869 and Salmon City was the county seat. Around the area, there were major mining operations in four other towns in Lemhi Valley between 1869 and 1904. So because business essentially is booming, the Gilmore and Pittsburgh Railroad is completed from Dubois, Idaho to Salmon, which is about 135 miles, and that railroad is completed in 1910. And the railroad was actually built to access ore from Gilmore, Idaho, I think. Mm. And, And so, again, you can see that this mining business is just totally booming. Salmon then receives legal status as a city around 1900, though it had been platted for about 33 years. It was platted in 1867 as sort of a a little town, and then it got city status in 1900. 
around the time that it got legal status, or probably by the time they were talking about it, trying to get it to get legal status, is the time that Fedora is now living there. Now, current day salmon is well known for its outdoor activities. The Salmon River, that was it was called the River of No Return by the Lewis and Clark Expedition, offers whitewater rafting and steelhead and salmon fishing during the summer and even during the winter. There's lots of stuff to do. You can go big game hunting. You can go on horseback rides. You can go rock climbing. Winter sports include snowmobiling, cross-country skiing, and snowshoeing. So there's lots of stuff to do. I think rafting the river is sort of the main thing to do out there. I think a lot of the economy is built on summer tourism. And I think you can tell by the the nickname that the Lewis and Clark expedition give it, the river of no return. This whitewater rafting is like pretty top notch, like high class. Yeah. If there are any listeners out there that have rafted out at salmon, like let us know. Mm-hmm. The population estimate of Lemhi County in 2018 was 7,961. And actually, it was only, I think, like less than 100 people higher than the population in 2010. So um, not a lot of growth out there. But I think, again, most of their economy is sort of built around tourism. So that is a little bit about Lemhi County and sort of the salmon area. You know, the area is full of miners, it's full of railroad workers, it's full of trappers. It's sort of a bit of a Wild West kind of area in 1898. And so Mm -hmm. Fedora is living out there and she is living with a man named Charlie Crawford, where she likely took her surname. Crawford is not exactly a very French last name. And so if she was living with him, then she tried to, you know, she took his last name I'm not sure if they were actually married or if she just sort of took his last name out of convenience. Maybe she did it to try to fit in. But what is interesting is that if she did it to try to fit in, there are actually a lot of French Canadians in the area because of that fur trapping. That Hudson Bay Company is a, is a Canadian company. And so I don't think it would have seemed out of the ordinary for her to have some sort of French last name. There aren't any records of a marriage. And when she came in, she listed herself as single. So I'm not sure why Mm -hmm. her last name is Crawford unless she just she was hoping to marry him and did it out of convenience. I'm not really sure why. But this is where she takes that last name. Fedora's story, the reason she's in the pen in the first place, and this is according to that single article in The Silver Messenger, her story opens with a man named Enos Martin. He had been working for the Monolith Company, which I think is a mining company. There's lots of companies called that now. There is actually a Monolith mine in Portland, which is why I think it was probably a mining company, and given sort of what's happening out there, doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility. So he's out there, he'd been working for the mining company, and he quits. And when he quits, he gets a $60 check. And he decides to give the $60 check to a man named Eve Gagnon. So Eve gets the $60 check for quote-unquote safekeeping. I don't know why, but this is what he does. And so Eve was actually married to a young woman named Nellie Smith. And according to this newspaper article, she was, quote, a former buckskin woman. I think this is sort of like old west slang for like a sex worker Mm. so she was a buckskin woman from yellow jacket and this is just a brief little snippet about yellow jacket it is actually currently one of the towns in lemhi county it's a little southwest of salmon and it popped up around gold and is currently a ghost town that you can visit Gold was discovered in Yellow Jacket in 1869, which led to the development of several quartz mines and the Yellow Jacket Mill. And Yellow Jacket was just in full mining operations, full swing by 
1890s. They had several hotels, boarding houses, and if you visit the site today, you can actually see remnants of a five-story hotel, several mining cabins, a boarding house, and what's called the stamp mill, so just another mill that was out there. And getting to the site, according to ghosttowns.com, it only takes two-wheel drive, I'm assuming pretty much any time but the winter. So if you're in the area and you want to check it out, um, again, it's just a little southwest of Salmon, and I bet if you were to go into Salmon and say, hey, we want to go visit Yellow Jacket, they could probably tell you how to get there. So that might be interesting if you're in the area or want a summer road trip. If we're still having to practice social distancing by then, that might be a nice little trip for you to take. <laughs> so, um, Yeah, visit your ghost towns. Yeah, go, go, to, go check out Yellow Jacket. So anyway, Eve and Nellie Smith have Enos's $60 check. But Enos soon wants that money back. So he goes to Eve. He says, hey, give me the money. Eve says, "Mm, no, I'm not going to give it up. And so Enos starts to get really stressed because he owes Charlie Crawford money. It doesn't say how much money he owes, but we do know that that $60 was going to go toward paying Charlie back. So he's stressed and he doesn't know what to do. He goes to Charlie, says, listen... I gave Eve the money. He's not giving it back to me. I promise I'm trying to pay you back. I'm not trying to skimp you on anything, but he won't give me the money back. So Charlie decides to take things into his own hands. So in early May 1898, Charlie, Enos, and Fedora, they all head to Eve's house. And they knock on the door, but Eve and Nellie are asleep. I believe in the the newspaper article it says they are in a, quote, blissful repose. So they're just sleeping, taking a nap. So when they don't answer... Charlie, Enos, and Fedora kick the door in, and it is on. So Charlie first shoots at Eve and hits Eve in the leg. And so Eve is struggling around. He's trying to get to, to Charlie. And Charlie, I don't know if he was out of bullets, if he didn't feel like he should shoot Nellie, but he actually attacks Nellie, and he beats her in the face with the butt of his gun. And he knocks out five oh. of her teeth and, quote, otherwise, and, and, then it, and then in the newspaper it says that he knocked out five teeth and, quote, otherwise swelling her head. So he is just beating the crap out of her. So Eve sort of recovers enough from the gunshot wound, enough to lunge at Charlie. He gets the gun from him. And then once Eve gets the gun, then he starts beating Charlie in the face with it himself. So there's just it's just a massive free-for-all, basically. And Fedora's role in the fight, interestingly, is not mentioned in the newspaper. But I would bet that while Charlie and Eve and probably Enos are all fighting, Fedora and Nellie are probably going after each other. And so it is just, just a total melee, just total chaos going on in this house. I mean, it's insanity. I just, I just imagine just everyone is throwing punches, rolling around on the ground. You know, there's smoke in the air from the gunshot. It's just crazy in here. So eventually this fight ends. I don't know if people heard the commotion and came in to stop the fight. If I don't know. But somehow the fight ends and Charlie, Enos and Fedora are all arrested and taken to Salmon to await trial. Eve is taken to a doctor to get the bullet out of his leg, but it's nowhere to be found. This is what the the newspaper article says. It says, quote, The pistol ball in Gagnon's leg is lost among the tendons and muscles, and the doctor could not find it, and it may be some time before he can go to Salmon to appear against Crawford, Martin, and Fedora. So, yeah. So he just has to sort of live the rest of of his life with a 
pistol ball in his leg. Wow. Yeah. And here's just a little kind of an interesting little tidbit. So this article that was in the Silver Messenger, it actually first appeared in the Gibbonsville Minor newspaper, but that newspaper went out of business by the 1920s. But it was sort of uh, like one of those like AP articles where they wrote it in the Gibbonsville Minor and then the Silver Messenger picked it up. And I'm so thankful that they, that they did and that the Silver Messenger is is digitized because if not, we would have no idea what happened. So it is not known if Charlie, Enos, and Fedora pled guilty or if they, ta- they were taken to trial for their crimes. Regardless of what happened, Fedora is sentenced to six months at the Idaho State Penitentiary for assault with a deadly weapon. Interestingly, neither Charlie nor Enos Martin are sent to the state penitentiary with her. It's not clear as to why that is. There are no records of trials or charges on any of them. And it would seem more likely that being a woman, she would be let off easier compared to the men, considering that this is 1898. And especially because this was such, I mean, it was essentially a pretty violent crime. Not violent as in killing each other, but they are, I mean, (laughs) Nellie's Nellie got five teeth knocked out of her head. Like, this is... Right. This is a pretty violent crime. Pretty vicious assault, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And so, the only reason that I can think of that she was sent to the penitentiary, not the men, was that the case could be proven that it was her idea in the first place. But we don't we don't have any record of that. As, like I said, she... Her role in the fight isn't even mentioned in that newspaper article. So it's unclear huh. as to why she was sent and the other two were not. Maybe they uh, skipped town. That, that was my uh, thought. Yeah, it so. could be. But I think they were all arrested together. Huh. It says in that newspaper article they were all taken to Salmon, um, which, again, is the county seat in, in the county. And And I guess what I also don't understand is... If this newspaper article is correct, it seems that Charlie was the one who wielded that deadly weapon. Yeah. But again, since we don't know her part in the fight, maybe she took the gun herself. Maybe she had a knife or, you know, some other weapon. I don't know. It is also possible that the two men were kept in the county jail. But again, the question there is why would they get the county jail and she get the state penitentiary? (laughs) Really? Jeez. No answers. Unfortunately, with these no answers, she enters the Idaho State Penitentiary on May 17th, 1898. So here are some statistics. She is 28 years old when she is received. She is born in France. She does not have an occupation listed, does not have a height listed. She has a dark complexion. She weighs 117 pounds. Her hair is black. Her eyes are black. She is single with no children. Again, her father died when she was two. Her mother died when she was nine. She has had religious instruction and attended Sunday school in the Catholic Church, which she still considered herself a part of. She had a common school education, attended school for nine years. She was a moderate drinker. And the name of her nearest relative is her aunt, Mary Dupony, in Paris, France. The condition of her teeth are two front teeth gone. This is how we know that she was probably involved in the fight because she has two front teeth missing. And those are those are tough teeth to just lose. Like if you have bad uh, dental hygiene, those are tough teeth to lose. Those two teeth are pretty tough. So I think that she and Nellie got pretty equal treatment in that regard. And then the property found on her, she had 65 cents in cash and a chain and a ring. 
and we don't know what this ring is. It could be from Charlie. I also imagine it could be maybe from one of her parents that she just keeps around her neck, which is kind of sweet. So when she entered the prison, she served time with Josie Kensler, who had been in for about a year, and she had nine more years to go, and then an inmate named Mary Van Leuven, who had entered in October 1897. They, all three of them, would have been kept in the 1890 cell house because the women's ward was not converted until 1905. And this is, again, all we know about her time in the prison. She was released on November 6th, 1898. She served five months and 16 days. Barely any time at all. I mean, she was only supposed to serve six months, so she did almost serve her entire sentence, but she still did get out a little bit early. Uh, We don't know why that is. If it was, I mean, again, it was pretty common for female inmates to serve less than their, even their minimum sentence. And I think she had one of the shortest sentences of all our inmates. Um, Six months is not a long time. So this is the end of Fedora's story as we know it. Now, there are a few Ancestry.com records for two women named Mary Dupony. Both were born in France in 1870 or around 1870 and immigrated into the U.S. by the early 1890s. And both of them, interestingly, were living in New Orleans. The only thing that make it seem like neither one of these are her is that both of them were married and Dupony was their married name. So one of these actually could be maybe her aunt, if her aunt is the same age, we don't know. And if her name as a single woman was Mary Dupony, then it doesn't seem that either of these women could be her. But that's interesting. And and New Orleans was such a a popular place for French immigrants because it, you know, it was essentially little France back in in the Uh late 1800s, uh, early 1900s. And then interestingly, there actually was also a name, a record for a woman whose name was Fedora Crawford, spelled with an F. But this Fedora Crawford was actually born in Alaska in 1873 and was married before 1898. So this is probably not her either. And, and I searched every possible resource for anything about any of these characters involved. On Ancestry, I searched for Charlie Crawford. I searched for Nellie Smith, which, of course, was near impossible. I searched for Enos Martin. I searched for Eve Gagnon. Like, I searched for everyone, and I couldn't find... Even on Ancestry, there wasn't records of any of them. Interestingly, I did actually... There is an IDS article from 1911 where a man named Charlie Crawford spelled the same... It's actually spelled a little bit differently. It's spelled C-H-A-R-L-E-Y instead of I-E. And so there's a man named Charlie Crawford from Haley, and he is accused as an accomplice to a murder. And Haley and Salmon are only about 200 miles from each other. So if this is the same Charlie Crawford, it seems that he just was probably a bad guy to hang out with. I think in the fact that Enos, like, owed him money, I for some reason imagine him as sort of like a mining mob boss. So I, I, I don't think he's a, he's a good guy for her to be hanging out with. And, and so that is actually all that I could find on anyone involved in Fedora's story. Interestingly, and I, I forgot to mention this off the top, the reason we couldn't find anything about her is because Fedora, in the records, is not spelled like the hat. It's spelled P-H-E-D-O-R-A. But yeah. in the newspaper article, in that Silver Messenger article, it's spelled like the hat, F-E-D-O-R-A. And so we just hadn't dug enough with those sort of different name spellings, like, like what happened with Susie Duffy, 
we just hadn't dug into that yet. And and again, I sort of searched through Library of Congress using that same spelling. This was the only article that popped up over and over and over. And so this is all we know, but this is actually quite a few more details than we have for many other inmates. So I was so excited to find that newspaper article. I think her story is so interesting. And, and I, I mean, I just wish we knew more about her. Yeah, it's such like a Wild West story. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that. I wonder if her English was really bad and that contributed to the lack of information about her and yeah. the misspelling of names mm-hmm. and everything else. Like, yeah, if there was a language barrier or... I don't know. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, it depends on when she got to the States. Uh, I I wonder, too, why she came over at all. Because her aunt is still in Paris, and I don't know if she maybe thought she had a better chance. Because I know that in France, and I don't know if they did, you know, in the previous century, but I know that sort of in the 20th and into the 21st century, most Europeans learn English as a second language. But I also don't know, you know, she did only attend school for nine years, whether it was until she was nine or until she was in her early teens. And so I don't know if she would have learned English. I don't know. There's so many... So many questions, but that definitely is a good point. It could be sort of misspellings. I think, frankly, this misspelling in the newspaper is just the newspaper not caring. <laughs> yeah, I just wish I knew more about her time in France. I, I think her story would be so fascinating if we could just find anything on her. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's really it, which just is too bad. Interesting. Yeah. I just finished a book on Dodge City and mm-hmm. Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were basically trying to clean up this Wild West town as, as sheriffs in the 1870s. And they talk a lot about sex workers in mm-hmm. those towns and how they would put on identities. And, you know, they would say they were French and all these different things. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of made me wonder that maybe it was it was a put on we don't probably won't ever know her true identity if it's one of those situations yeah. or why oh man how yeah. difficult sky nice work <laughs> trying to piece that all together thank and, you yeah most yeah. of most of the information was honestly from that document in her inmate file and again like i've said before we have to take those records sort of at the word of of the inmates because they're the ones who answer those questions and and so if they say i was born in france and this is my nearest relative you know we have to take their word for that well all right sky nice work yeah that is uh number 636 fedora crawford and and i do have to apologize we don't have a mugshot for her she she's actually one of the early ones that, that we don't have one for and i'm so disappointed i i would so love to know if she matches what i imagine her to look like She's quite dark, according to her inmate file, which I I guess I imagined her a little bit lighter because she is probably from the mainland of France. But, you know, maybe her her parents were immigrants from somewhere else. I don't know. Yeah, it's weird that we have Josie Kensler's mugshot. We don't have any until Josie. We have Josie's, which I wonder if hers was just because her case was so infamous. Because then we don't have one for Mary Van Leuven, who comes in right after Josie, or for Fedora. And then I think we have one for everyone after that. So I don't know. But it would actually be no one came into the prison after Fedora until like 1904. Until Ida, I think. 
you know, I would imagine practices in, you know, prison officiating have probably developed a little bit more. So I'm wondering if, if maybe by then they, they decided, like, maybe we should be taking pictures of the women. Like, just because they're women doesn't mean they shouldn't get their pictures taken or I don't know. But uh, I just wish we, of all, all of the inma- all female inmates who don't have photos, I, like, want, to, want hers, like, the most. Yeah, same. Let's hear who you have got today. I have inmate number 1934, Benjamin Thomas Penn. Ah, yes. And yes, this is actually who I wanted to talk about at Treefort this year. And I decided, you know what? I did all this research. I had so much fun, and I just want to do the whole thing. So this is kind of a Treefort special treat. I'll do a new one, of course, in September when we do Treefort mm-hmm. again. Yeah, and I saved my tree fort because she fits so perfectly into sort of the theme that Anthony and I were trying to keep. Um, And I wasn't sure if we had any other inmate who fit quite as nicely. So I'm going to keep mine for tree fort, which is why I don't have a tree fort special. But I can't wait to hear about what you've come up with for, for Benjamin Penn. All right, so my sources... I use the Idaho Statesman, of course, Library of Congress Chronicling America, several Library of Congress photos, and even sheet music, Benjamin Penn's inmate file, wards reports, Idaho State Archives collections, Britannica.com article on minstrel shows, and a History.com article titled, Teddy Roosevelt Discusses America's Race Problem. Oh, boy. strap in. I can't wait to hear uh, Teddy Roosevelt's take on the race problem. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, Benjamin Thomas Penn was born in Grand Chain, Illinois, on November 21st, 1887. And he lived there until he was about 12 years old. And then he and his parents moved to Cairo, Illinois. And I just got to do a shout out to our listener, Maya, for uh, letting us know that it's not Cairo, Illinois. It's Cairo. So, thank you. Yeah. In the 1900 census, Benjamin was living with his father, Benjamin Sr., his mother, Dicey Penn, and his older brothers, Joseph and Henry, and younger siblings, Lena, Rhody, and Raymond. His dad and older brothers worked as day laborers while he and his younger siblings were going to school. Benjamin Penn is African-American, and so, you know, he grew up with some difficulty, and and I just thought that was an important thing to note. Mm -hmm. Uh, He lived there for... Three or four years, and during that time, he actually worked for the Singer Sewing Machine Company. While he was doing that, he was studying music and playing in an orchestra in and around Cairo. And I I couldn't find the exact orchestra's name, though in that period, around the turn of the century, there were a lot of performances in Cairo by local and youth orchestras. Now, the Singer Sewing Machine Company in 1904 boasted employment of 250,000 men who had manufactured and sold 1,149,000 sewing machines in 1903, which means roughly about 4,000 machines were made every single day. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot. And they had bought like 45,000 acres of timber in Arkansas uh, just to keep the business up. And it was anticipated that 92% of all sewing machines sold in the world were Singer sewing machines. So... If you, like I had as a kid, 
an antique sewing machine. Check it out. See if it's a singer. It might have been, you know, constructed by Benjamin Penn when he was a little kid here. Well, and and sewing machines were so new and novel and, like, changed. I mean, with industrialization, it just changed the way that, that basically women could do work inside of their own homes. And mm-hmm. yeah, so Singer like was in the right place at the right time, basically, and we're we're able Absolutely. to capitalize on that. I mean, and it's so big, like we still use Singers today. Like that's still a name that I'm familiar with. That if you were to be like, "What does Singer make?" I'd be like, "Oh, sewing machines." Yeah, yeah, it's so cool. My dad used to go to the main auction in downtown Boise, and I I kind of grew up there. Every weekend, I was there with my dad, and he would always come home with, you know, what my mom would say was junk, but uh, (laughs) he would call them like antiques and things. And I remember we had this really, really old foot crank uh, sewing machine. And Mm -hmm. I I feel like it was a singer. It was Mm -hmm. the coolest thing. Yeah. I didn't know how to sew, but it was fun to like play with it and tinker with it as a kid. You know, we ha- we're so blessed to have, like, mechanical ones where you just push the, the little pedal and it does it for you. But back then you had to, like, pump it yourself to, like, make it right. move. Oh, you're, like, I just get shin splints, like, just thinking about having to do that over and over. Like, your calves <laughs> cool. would be solid. Anyway. Yeah. He would leave this manufacturing job and begin working as a professional musician when he joined the Robinson Circus. And the circus, it had been almost 100 years old. It was established in 1824 by John Robinson and continued down the family line into the 20th century. And I found a write-up in October 1907 about the Robinson Circus performing in Cairo. And Cairo was the confluence of the Ohio and the Mississippi rivers in that city. And according to this article, no human ever swam the Mississippi there. And up to yesterday, no breathing thing of any kind ever attempted the feat. Basil, 200-year-old mother of Jumbo, the pride of the John Robinson herd of elephants, not only made the attempt, but actually accomplished the feat. It was the most (laughs) wonderful sight to the few who witnessed it. The elephants were taken to the river by Dick Jones, their keeper and handler, at dusk for a bath. The entire herd plunged in and swam near the shore. They splashed and threw water like a body of monster whales. Jones tried in vain to get them to venture out, but each instance they trumpeted loudly and refused. Finally, he bethought a plan. He mounted the huge back of Basil and urged her across. This gave the old girl confidence. (laughs) Proudly, she parted the waves and moved through the water to the other shore like a huge battleship. Not only this, but she came safely back. So, of course, this stunt was done to promote the show, which had three rings, two stages, a hippodrome track, which is like a horse racing track, a midair arena, and a Wild West realm that included over 500 minor acts and three big thrillers. So, you're going to notice I I really like all the elephant stories in these circuses, even though, you know, you've seen some sad movies where they're not treated well. They probably weren't always, but still... They were beloved by everybody who saw them. Who doesn't want a good elephant just, like, swimming around? Like, there's so many great elephant videos on YouTube these days. Like, the one, have you seen the one of the baby elephant that's, like, he's kind of scared off by birds. Like, he's so excited when he sees the pack of birds. (laughs) And then he gets scared by him and he, like, runs behind his mom, like, super. And the mom just is like, okay, like, come on. It's really cute. 
Also, I haven't unre- seen that. I'm gonna have to look it up. Unrelated to elephants, <laughs> have you seen the videos of all the like zoos that are closed down? So then they let the penguins like roam around in all the other exhibits. Yeah, I did oh, see that. They are my so favorite. Cute. Oh, they're my favorite. <laughs> oh. Anyway, sorry. Oh, back yeah. to back to elephants no, and circuses. Good. Yeah, so he's he's playing music for this band, and then after his stint with the Robinson Circus, he actually joins the Parker Carnival Company, which was unique for being a clean show. They didn't have any immoral features or gambling devices attached to them, and uh, their gimmick, they had an airship and a balloon, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. They're also well known for their dog, pony, monkey, goat, and bird circus. <laughs> And they said they're all trained to do almost everything but talk, <laughs> which I thought, woo, that's good. Yeah. Anyway, I read one review about a skit in which trained birds acted out a scene in which a villain bird snatched up a damsel heroine bird and tied her up before setting fire to the platform that she was placed on. Whoa. <laughs> this hero firefighter bird swoops in last minute, unties the damsel and brings her out to safety. Uh, I mean, super riveting stuff. I love it. (laughs) I I wish I could join the circus like 100 years ago. (laughs) Sounds like such a good time. Uh, In 1905, the company had 22 train cars worth of people, animals, and amusements and included a symphony band of 30 pieces, which is where our Benjamin Penn found himself traveling the country and performing. And like most musical, theatrical, and arts careers, there's a lot of bouncing around, finding new gigs, and Ben found a new one with the popular Cells Floto Circus. It isn't noted when he joined, but uh, we know he, he had been with them for some time before his crime in 1912. Now, circuses were amazing promoters, obviously. I've already told you a couple of ways that they promoted in the newspaper. I had a blast, like, going across all these different news articles from 1912 from the Sells Floto Circus. And they had this perfect little mascot. It was a baby elephant that was born on the road in Salinas, California on April 25th, 1912. Uh-huh. And he was depicted in several advertisements that called him United States' biggest baby with the world's biggest show. And the newspaper claimed that it was the first time on record that an elephant was born and bred on American soil. He weighed 180 pounds, stood 24 inches high, was 36 inches long, and his mother is one of the largest elephants living, being Alice of the Sells Floater herd of performing pachyderms. The little fellow is being raised by hand, as from the time of his birth, his mother refused to own him, and, in fact, it took the efforts of all the elephant men of the circus to subdue her in order to prevent her from crushing him to death. Sad. So thankfully, this little 180-pound elephant served as their advertising uh, in each city. About a week before they would go to a city, they would send a photo of this cute little elephant. And I'll post it in our Facebook group. So check it out. It's so cute. Anyway, you can imagine... The competition performers would have against this little baby. (laughs) Uh, There are tons of advertisements as they traveled, and they promoted their their newest acts and uh, the drop in price to 25 cents per admission, which was huge because they weren't part of this big circus union that was going on. They were doing their own thing and, and separate from everybody else. They scheduled their stop to Boise, Idaho on June 10th, 1912 
for one day, and they were bringing a true nightmare to some, a group of 40 clowns. And one haunting advertisement stated, 40 clowns are about to invade the city. At least that's how I read it. Yikes. Uh, but <laughs> on June 10th, ticket sales began in downtown Boise at 9 a.m. with a live band performance that most likely would have included Benjamin Penn. Then at 10.30, the circus troupe paraded through downtown Boise, and he probably would have been in the marching band as they did that. The tent was set up, which could hold up to 10,000 people, and the first performance actually began at 2.30 p.m., with the final performance scheduled for 8.15 p.m. As with all big events and circuses, there tended to be many criminals who followed these circuses and committed crimes while the populace was basically busy at the show. And to combat this, Boise police swore in extra officers to keep an eye out for pickpockets, thugs, and short-change men. Thousands of dollars were spent, and the statesman noted few were the families that did not contribute a dollar or two to the show. It was estimated that 14,000 people attended the circus, which, you know, at 25 cents a pop would equal about $3,500 just at admissions that the circus would have made, not including, you know, extra special areas that you could spend an extra quarter in and all that stuff. So, you know, they made quite a bit of money that day. Mm -hmm. Uh, The circus leaders cleared up their tents and loaded the trains, purchased groceries in town before heading west to their next stop in Nampa. And Benjamin Penn and the rest of the African-American band actually boarded the platform at the very end of the train. They were at the very back of the train. And when it started on its way, the musicians began to drink. And they actually started to fight for the attention of the newest member of the group, an attractive African-American woman named Dolly Clements, who was picked up in a previous stop in Portland, Oregon. So around midnight... Benjamin and another band member began to get rowdy and fight over her attention. And hearing this, the director of the band, his name was Arthur Lacey, felt it was his duty to settle the affair. Another member of the band actually jumps in, and the three were brawling, and Lacey pulled out a knife and actually swung it at Benjamin twice, but missed. Ben pulled a gun, shot once, missing his target, and it stopped the brawl. Everybody stopped. And Lacey actually ran to the door, and when he got to the door, he was greeted by another bullet to the thigh. Realizing what he had done, Benjamin actually ran to the door and jumped out of the moving train and ran off into the night. The train conductor was alerted, but the train was moving, so Arthur and Lacey had to wait until they reached a Nampa hospital where the wound was probed and the bullet, which was from a heavy caliber revolver, was removed in three pieces. The thigh bone was badly shattered. And the colored man's condition is considered to be very critical. Should he survive the shock of the injury, it is probable that the wounded limb will be amputated. Uh, yikes. There's lots of shooting in the leg this episode. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, you had one too. Yeah. Oof. Oh, yeah. Ben actually runs into Boise where he remained on the loose and laid low all day long. And the next day, he actually started towards Barber Dam, but changed his mind and uh, boarded a train to Nampa, where he ran into Police Chief Maloney, who was on the lookout for him. And he was arrested and actually sent back on the train to Boise, where he's lodged in the Ada County Jail on the charge of assault with a deadly weapon and held on a $2,000 bond. A headline stated, Penn is a nervous man. Colored bandmaster may face still more serious charge as Arthur Lacey remained in the hospital in critical condition. So, July 11th, 
1912 as his preliminary hearing. And uh, Arthur Lacey, you know, he didn't stabilize for a month. So that's why it was a month mm-hmm. later. So the hearing for Benjamin's trial didn't occur until July 11th. Arthur arrived from Nampa with crutches and served as the only witness, which was sufficient to hold Benjamin Penn. And it's noted that Dolly Clements was working in a moving picture show in Twin Falls and would attend the trial if she was needed. And I couldn't find any evidence of of what moving picture show, what she was doing there. Back then they had little like cigarette girls um, that would sort of wander the lobby uh, as well, which I think was a pretty common. What year is this? Early 1900s, 1912. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It may have been segregated. It may not have been. I don't know if Twin would have had very many... African Americans by then, interesting. Yeah, I didn't. I couldn't find a lot on it, but uh, mm-hmm. that would make a good sense, though. Mm-hmm. So July's his preliminary hearing in August. On August sixth, there's some problematic things that appear. So it's important to know that during all of this, all of these newspaper clippings make the reader aware that these were African American men, and they are described in many different terms that I will not say. Oh, yikes. But uh, the most offensive thing to our modern view is an article that came out a month before Ben's trial titled, County Jail Looks Like Colored Camp Meeting Lot. Oh, I remember this. Yeah. This is the worst article. It's rough, but I think I found some reasoning behind it. So... C-H-I-C-K-E-N, mm-mm, watermelon, oh my, and all for Benny Penn. I don't think I need to talk about why this is horribly offensive and prejudiced. Uh, it's a testament to the extra pressure that people of color were and continue to be forced to experience. And the article notes that uh, yesterday will go down in the annals of the County Bastille as Africa Day. And all because an overwhelming majority of all the callers yesterday were true sons of Ham, which, ugh. Yep. It says that the visitors were there because they were both performing and or attending a performance of a minstrel show and had played the day before in downtown Boise as part of a grand street parade. After the parade and throughout the afternoon, they came in groups and individually to the prison and brought treats like peanuts, candy, watermelons, oranges, cooked chicken, and other items, which, you know, I don't know how accurate that even is. But uh, in all, 32 people came to visit Ben and talk to him and, and bring him these treats. A deputy said that it has been the greatest day for colored folk visitors that the old jail has ever known. (sighs) Of course, you know, this got me thinking and I had to figure out, you know, why, why would this ever be published in the newspaper? Mm -hmm. And I dug to a day before on August 5th, 1912 and found the headline race war breaks out among whites and blacks on the streets of Boise. Newcomers from sunny south undertake to monopolize all out of doors. The first paragraph sums up the event. There seems to have been no cause for the fight other than a race prejudices. And it reports that there were African-American families that had moved from the south to the area around 17th and Front Street. And they took over the local playground, leaving, as the statesman described, port white trash to play in the streets. Well, this turned into another battle, and the white children were actually driven off of the streets, and parents got involved and actually charged into the playground and chased the kids out of the playground so threateningly that the police were called. And the officer said that he was met four blocks from the scene of the battle. The colored man said he thought the whites were going to kill him. 
there's a lot of racial tension going on right here, hmm. right before Ben's trial, you know. And nationally, at this time, there's a presidential election going on between Woodrow Wilson, Democrat, William Howard Taft, the incumbent, Eugene V. Debs, the socialist, and mm-hmm. Theodore Roosevelt, the progressive, who had just barred all African-American delegates from the South from supporting him, stating he hoped conditions might improve in the South, that the future progressive conventions these states might send as delegates, those who would have the character and standing of the delegates from West Virginia, who, he asserted, were in those respects the equal of their white associates. So I eliminated his descriptive words to describe these Southern African-American delegates that he refused to accept to nominate him. Roosevelt spoke in 1905 when he was reelected for a second term as president about the solution to the race problem as being a slow aim towards social and economic equality. And from basically every echelon of society, African-Americans were at odds with their white counterparts. You know, he's looking at it locally. He's looking at it in the newspaper. Benjamin Penn, like, had no chance. (laughs) And he wasn't going to receive any public sympathy. And honestly, not supporting African-Americans sort of in favor of keeping white Southern delegates happy with presidential candidates is um, pretty common, honestly, through like Eisenhower. Like I think even FDR does it. Right. Um, Yeah. And so this isn't just something that just like magically went away. This inequality is so common after the Civil War and especially after Reconstruction. Yeah, it's super unfortunate. And I'm not surprised. Good old Teddy Roosevelt was not as progressive as he tried to make it seem in 1905. Yeah. Anyway, so back to Ben. September 3rd, 1912, he is arraigned and he's uh, given the attorney Luther W. Tennyson. And September 4th, the next day, he's brought before the court to enter a plea and he pleads not guilty, hoping that he could fight the charge with the plea of self-defense. And September 9th, 1912, the trial takes one day, and Arthur Lacey and Dolly Clements both serve as witnesses against Benjamin Penn. And he is found guilty by the jury with assault with a deadly weapon. And the statute for assault with a deadly weapon at the time was a term in the state penitentiary of from six months to two years, or a fine not exceeding $5,000, or both, the fine and imprisonment. The next day, on September 10th, 1912, the judge sentenced Ben Penn to not less than one year nor more than two years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. He is given the number 1934, and he arrives at the prison on September 12th, 1912. And the Idaho statesman, of course, following this story from the beginning, had to write the classic headline, Penn Goes to Penn. (laughs) I don't blame him. I was actually looking for it when I started this, and... Like, of course, there it is. Crime, assault with a deadly weapon. Sentence, not less than one year, nor more than two years. Age, 25. Born in Grand Chain, Illinois. Legitimate occupation, musician slash barber. Served apprenticeship as a musician. Height, five feet, four and a half inches tall. Complexion, Negro. Weight, 161 pounds. Color of hair, black, kinky, color of eyes, brown, black, whites, prominent, 
conjugal relations, single. Domestic relations, father died when prisoner was 20, mother died when prisoner was 12, prisoner left home when he was 20 years old. Had religious instruction and attended Sunday school in the Missionary Baptist Church, but was not currently in a church. Had a common school education with two years of school attendance. Drink moderately. Nearest relative was his cousin William Hudgen in Cairo, Illinois. Peculiarity in build and feature, regular, uh, large prominent eyes, eyes inclined to be a little crossed. Condition of teeth, poor, four or five out, each side back, upper and lower jaws. No beard worn. Size of boot, eight and eight and a half. Size of hat, seven and one eighth. Property found on convict, cash, $20.15. Clothing and commissary department. Parents were both born in the United States, and he had been in Idaho but a short time when the trouble occurred. On his Bertillion form, it shows that he had a scar on his inner left thigh and scars on his face, and it also noted that the first joint of his right middle finger was amputated, which would have made uh, playing music a little difficult um, yeah. for some folks, and especially playing the middle valve of the trumpet may have been, it may have taken a little bit of time to master. I did not know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Warren Snook also noted that on the backside of the Bertillion, that skin brown black and scaly back shoulders legs are one mass of small lumps caused by blackheads or hairs his attorney luther w tennyson esquire wrote in about his past and stated that he has never been convicted of a felony or misdemeanor before his parents were both peaceable and law-abiding people and from my relations with him as his attorney in the recent case against him i do not believe he is or ever has been a dangerous citizen so, his time in prison. I actually dug into the 1913-1914 Warden's Biennial Report, and Warden Snook wrote that we are face-to-face -face with a condition whereby the state sentences a person to be confined in the penitentiary at hard labor without first having made provisions for the furnishing of such labor. Purposeful labor should be provided for the employment of all prisoners. Idleness begets bodily and mental deterioration and develops vice and insanity, retards whatever improvement prisoners might otherwise be susceptible of, also inflicts a needless penalty on the taxpayers of this state. The warden saw farming as the best job for prisoners because it built up the bodies of the prisoners and led to more self-sustaining production to reduce the burden of the prison on taxpayers. And he sought more farmland and established several camps throughout the state. And I looked into the uh, racial makeup of the prison in this period as well. And there were 321 white men, 19 men who were Mexican, 21 that were black, one Indian man, and one Chinese man totaling 363 total men. And that was during the time that the territorial prison, 1890 cell house, and two house were open. So it was pretty full. Yeah. Under the occupation breakdown, there weren't any musicians, which I thought was surprising. So Benjamin was most likely listed as one of the three barbers. Among some of the more interesting jobs that I found, such as a candy maker, a veterinary surgeon, three scholars, a physician, and a real estate agent in 1912-1913 era. Dang, how did that candy maker get in there? I know. that's That <laughs> might be my next story. I might Seriously. find that out. That might be my tree fort story. <laughs> the candy man can. <laughs> 
at the candy man can. So despite not having any legitimate musicians listed, the prison authorities actually saw the value of keeping the men busy and motivated and allowed prisoners to start a band and even put on concerts so that members of the community could watch. A concert was held on New Year's Day in 1913, just under four months after Benjamin arrived. Journalists from the Idaho Statesman attended and wrote up an article, Convicts Show Real Talent on Stage, Put On Minstrel Show That Is Collection of High-Class Numbers, Songs, Jokes, and Dances, Even the Warden Not Immune from Jests of N-Men. So believe it or not, we have a photo of this minstrel performance with Ben right there front and center. And for those of you who do not know what minstrel shows or minstrelsy were, it was a major form of popular entertainment that was based around the comic enactment of racial stereotypes in the 19th and 20th centuries. And it was based on white males who painted their faces black and stage shows caricaturing the singing and dancing of slaves. Mm -hmm. And it's credited with beginning with a white man named Thomas Dartmouth Rice, who was nicknamed Jim Crow Rice and Daddy Rice, who was a traveling actor that created a song and dance show called Jump Jim Crow in 1828, which blew up not only in America, but also in Europe as he traveled and performed in blackface. This led to uh, other companies taking the idea and developing shows with a format that included two acts. And the first act began with the performers standing in a semicircle, opening in song to a leader in whiteface who's wearing nice formal clothing called the interlocutor, who stood in the middle and he interacted with the men on the end of the circle nearest the audience called the end men, who wore blackface and wore street clothes. After the grand entrance of this interlocutor, he would tell the surrounding troop in blackface to sit down and begin telling jokes, interspersed with songs, ballads, comic songs, and instrumental pieces, typically using banjo and violin. The second act of the show consisted of a series of one acts that ended with what was called a hoedown or a walk around in which all the performers would clap and dance and sing while a member did a specialty number in the middle of it. And these minstrel shows were all white men in blackface until after the Civil War, when black performers actually began developing their own minstrel troops and performing in the United States and Europe. And often, these troops upped the musical repertoire and advertised in towns by performing parades in town during the day to encourage folks to watch the show at night, which is probably what happened when all these folks came to visit Ben in uh, 1912. So it's one of the only mediums for talented black performers in the 20th century to make a real living performing. And around the early 1900s, minstrel shows actually began to include mixed companies with both black and white men, and eventually women were included in the mix. The performance style is basically in the roots of our culture, as many TV shows, styles of music, and other mediums rely on stereotype caricatures of African Americans, like even to this day. And there were a lot of examples on this Britannica article, like Sanford and Son and other other TV shows from the 70s. Just as someone who studies, you know, film and culture in the early 20th century, this is, it is everywhere. It doesn't really go out of style until, I would honestly say, like the late 1940s. There's one film I'm thinking of in particular, it actually is Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, where they do what is essentially a minstrel show, just to give you, if you haven't seen it, just to give you an idea of what it might look like. It's not great. It's not great. And I, you know, I hate to, to say like, oh, it's just the time. 
so it's fine. Like, it's not fine, but it was, that is the time. Yeah, it's it's such a strange medium. It was such a big piece of our pop yeah. culture here in the United States. And it spread, you know, musical art forms. And a lot of music was written by African-Americans. So, like, it was this... A way to spread African-American culture that was being developed, but in such a demeaning way. Yeah, absolutely. So the the first sound film, it's called The Jazz Singer, not the one with yeah. Neil Diamond. That's my mom, or yeah, <laughs> one of the Neils. My mom was like, oh, I love that movie. And I was like, nope, different movie. Um, 1927, a man named Al Jolson, it, he, he does blackface in it, and he sings a song called Mammy, which is a very sort of stereotypical like quote-unquote southern black song and I had to write a paper on it last semester and there was a really interesting article where you know everyone sort of uh, all all of the scholars recently have come out and said oh this is so wildly offensive how dare he do this but another scholar actually looked at the people who are watching because Al Jolson ended up making several other films where he performs in blackface and he said African-Americans actually kind of flocked to his movies because it was even in a, a really demeaning way it was sort of a representation of their culture and their talent on screen um, right. and Al Jolson yeah. as a as a as a Jewish man he was sort of a, a minority speaking to a, another minority and so in that way they could actually sort of relate to his experiences in in having to do like what he can in order to make it big that yeah. take has been sort of debated on, but that was kind of a really interesting way to look at it as well. Yeah. The more I went, looked into it and saw how many doors it actually opened for a lot of African-Americans, mm-hmm. it was just such an interesting thing. It was that like taking ownership of this demeaning thing and turning it into a really cool piece of art. And it is uh, such a fascinating topic. So back at the prison, there was a two-hour performance to the entire prison population, as well as 20 outside visitors on New Year's Day. And it had some great prison jokes during the show. Uh, The newspaper had a quote from the beginning when an Edmund said, I'm so handsome, everybody wants my photograph. The girls are always begging me for them, and so are my other admirers. Why, when I came here, even the warden wanted a couple of photographs of me. (laughs) Of course, he's referencing his mugshot. Of course. Uh, The opening numbers included Moonlight Bay and Just for a Girl and several others that the journalist noted that the voice blending could not be outdone outside the prison walls. Minstrel shows were a great place to tell jokes hidden behind the veneer of blackface, and everybody and everything was a potential target, and they used the stage to pick on Warden Snick some more. And one performer was twiddling his fingers, acting like he was counting them. When another performer asked what he was doing, he said, Eyes are trying to figure out when in 1915 that new machinery is going to be installed in the laundry. Referring to a new motor that was purchased by the prison administration in 1912 that the administrators hadn't figured out how to install yet. And uh, apparently the warden also got a kick out of this and laughed at it. But the parole violators were roasted the most, and one in particular got made fun of. He had been paroled on December 9th, 1912, just a couple weeks before the show, and within five hours was brought back to the prison for breaking his parole by breaking the fifth rule. He shall, at all times, abstain from the use of intoxicating liquor in any form. He was an easy target. He had apparently 
as soon as he got out, he started drinking and he got busted. So the show continued. The instrumental work was fantastic and included a trombone solo by a burglar named Frank Mack and a harmonica solo by another burglar named George Horsley. And he did such a good job that he was asked to perform an encore of his piece. The show closed with a playlet called The Sign of the Indian, which included inmates not only in blackface, but some cross-dressing. They said Fred Tracy as the fair Alice was as fancy a piece of femininity as ever donned a hobble skirt. (laughs) (laughs) The newspaper said that the performance was fantastic, songs were well sung, the jokes were well sprung, and the vaudeville numbers could only have been outdone by professionals. The inmates had painted backdrops that changed and even made their own costume changes. And Ben Penn is never mentioned, though in the photo he is front and center holding a trumpet. And uh, in March, an article appeared in the Idaho Statesman titled, Set Free Music Bars Behind Prison Bars, Convicts at Penitentiary to Organize a Brass Band Under Competent Leader. That leader, Benjamin Penn, who is mistakenly named William Penn throughout the article. (laughs) And I love how it starts because it says, Men may be confined behind iron bars, but musical genius can never be imprisoned if action just taken by convicts at the Idaho State Penitentiary is any indication. The inmates have agreed to form a genuine brass band and, with Warden Snook's full approval, expect to order instruments and begin rehearsals at once. William Penn knows his business and is an inmate of the penitentiary because while playing in a circus band here a year ago, he took a shot at a fellow musician in a quarrel over a woman. It is expected that the new band will offer ample opportunity for most of the harmony-loving inmates to get together. It is to be a genuine organization with all necessary brass and reed instruments, a real bass drum and cymbals. As soon as the instruments arrive, rehearsals will begin, and sometime during the summer, the band will be able to give its first concert. Now, unfortunately, I actually couldn't find any performances listed by the band other than one on Christmas Day in 1913 that was complimented highly for its efficiency, which I thought was an interesting compliment. (laughs) Anyway... Ben is actually released on June 12th, 1914, with the expiration of his sentence, serving a total of one year and nine months at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Now, the rest of his life, I have a little bit on it. So from Benjamin's World War I draft registration, we find that he was 29 years old, and he's living back in Cairo, Illinois. And he was still a musician and played with a man named George Epps. He had married since his release from prison, but I couldn't find any marriage certificates or anything else along those lines. He actually served in a World War I segregated unit as a musician in a headquarters band, which consisted of 28 men, and the bands had a band leader, an assistant band leader, and a sergeant bugler, two band sergeants, four band corporals, two musicians first class, four musicians second class, and 13 musicians third class which is where Benjamin found himself, and he served in the Illinois Headquarters Company, the 64th Pioneer Infantry, as a musician, third class. There is a whole history of segregated units, and if you're interested, I'd recommend that you all search for the 369th Infantry, known as the Harlem Hellfighters, who were attached to serve under the French Army. And they were given the distinction of not only being one of the most effective troops of soldiers against Germany, but also of bringing jazz to France. 
And it was led by an African-American man named Jim Europe, whose band in 1912, the same time that Ben was incarcerated in Idaho, was the first to perform in Carnegie Hall. So it was the first African-American performance in Carnegie Hall by this future World War I band leader of the Hellfighters. And it's super entertaining. Uh, if you look up this this read by the Daily Beast from 2018 called World War One's Harlem Hellfighters Who Cut Down Germans and Gave France Jazz, it details the band's importance in history. And Benjamin wasn't in this troupe, but he most likely would have played some of the same music that was written and arranged by Jim Europe. After the war, Benjamin actually returned to the United States and moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, where he began his own band called the Deluxe Syncopators, and they played in dance halls in the early 20s. In 1925, he wanted to grow his band, so he took out an advertisement in the Northwestern Bulletin Appeal in St. Paul stating, Brass Band and String Orchestra Will Organize. Benjamin T. Penn, the organizer of the Deluxe Syncopators, is extending an invitation to all musicians of the Twin Cities to meet him. Mr. Penn, an experienced band and orchestra leader for years, is known in many cities in the East as an organizer of young bands and orchestras. He has also been reproducer and musical director for many professional companies, such as musical comedies, minstrels, etc. He is qualified to write, arrange, or teach all musical instruments. All that is required to become a member of the band is to have a little knowledge of the rudiments of music. So he was trying to establish a band and a, a basically a musical community where he could teach and have performers at the same time and, and continue to, you know, kind of have an artistic commune to put on these concerts and these different shows. The next information I came across for Ben was in 1942 with his draft registration card for all men born between April 28th, 1877, and February 16th, 1897. And the card listed his age as 54 years old, and he was living and working in Washington, D.C. Now, Ben applied for Social Security 10 years later, February 8th, 1956. And beyond that, the only thing I could find was a military grave marker that noted that Benjamin Penn died January 26th, 1962, and was interred on February 1st, 1962, at Fort Levensworth National Cemetery in Kansas. Mm. He was 74 years old. So he lived a very long and prolific life as a mm-hmm. musician. And really, like, I wanted all of our Tree Fort attendees who were, you know, musicians and people who love music and musicians just to know that it's possible that that it used to be possible to be a a traveling musician and to be a band (laughs) member and you know what what it took was just work and just constantly building communities and working and getting jobs and you know maybe you didn't like the job you had you didn't like working a minstrel show but that was that was your only opportunity your only available gig at that point so you took it despite the horrible treatment that may have come with it and the belittlement of of your race and and everything else so it was possible to make a living back then it is not now it's difficult now yeah there it's still we rely on communities and we rely on festivals and and traveling the country and selling merch and promoting ourselves and Nothing has changed. It's a difficult life. But, I mean, Benjamin Penn is an example of somebody who, even in prison, 
continued his craft and continued to play. And, you know, that's what it comes down to. You just have to constantly work at it and know that it's difficult and you might not be successful in the end. You might not be uh, a Jim Europe, uh, a household name to some, you know, mm-hmm. you might just be forgotten, but you can still touch people's lives and, and improve them and, you know, keep doing your art. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Anthony, what is there to say besides great work every time? This was a fun one. Yeah. I had I had so much fun. It's that difficult thing where how do I, as a straight white man in Idaho, how, how do I talk about this subject? So right. I was certainly nervous to discuss this in front of a live audience. So <laughs> I'm a little bit relieved to do this in the... Uh, comfort of this world war one battle trench that i'm sitting in right now (laughs) and i I think that's kind of telling and it's difficult history to to discuss absolutely well that's i mean that's just the challenge with sort of working at the penitentiary is is how do you sort of tell these stories in a way that like they need to be told because some some of these inmates weren't in for super violent crimes and you know were in because they made a mistake for whatever reason and then some were in because they were bad people and so how do you accurately portray both of those and then some come from very diverse backgrounds that are different from our own so how do we respectfully deal with that and and that is just the task of a historian and that's what is fun and difficult and scary but that's how we learn history is we have to come upon these difficult subjects and you know we have to be willing to try to portray it and and make mistakes and be willing to learn from those mistakes because heaven knows the way that i've talked about african americans in the past have been nowhere near the appropriate way to treat them and and so being humble enough to be able to learn from people is what what being i think not only a good historian but just a good person is about yeah well said thank you sky There's my history soapbox for the episode. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. All right, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay inside. Wash those hands. Wash your hands. 20 seconds. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.